1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to continue the theme of the making of a disciple. And tonight I want to focus on the idea of failing forward. If you would just say that with me, failing forward. God bless you. You may be seated. And it's so good to see so many people here, even with social distancing on a, on a Wednesday night. In February, I spent three cents, three Wednesdays talking about the making of a disciple. I'll spare you the reviews except for the title. The first night was an overview, what is a disciple? The second Wednesday night, the 17th, was patience with the process. I, we actually, I was not here on the first uh, Wednesday because of district board. Patience with the process. And then on the 24th, the marks of maturity. And then Brother Jury ministered last week in this same theme of putting off, putting on, and being renewed. Now, the ideal disciple is really not a disciple at all. It's a myth. It's the one we follow, not the followers. That would be Jesus Christ, and he is perfect and flawless. The real disciples of Jesus are people like you and me, who are imperfect, flawed in the journey, trying to be like Jesus Christ, and we've made up our minds that we're going to follow him, flaws and all. And if we fail... We've just made up our mind that we're going to fail forward toward Him and toward being like Him instead of falling away because of sin. Now the Apostle John in our text gave us this expectation. My little children, these believers, I write these things, I write unto you that you sin not. I'm writing this epistle, this letter to you for a preventative measure. I'm going to give you insight and understanding that will keep you from falling into the snare of sin. It is better to not sin. Sin has consequences. Kicks have kickbacks. And there's always a price to pay when we sin. And sin is avoidable. Sin is not the result of chance. It is always the result of a choice that we make to disobey God's word and the promptings of God's spirit and to fall for the devices of the devil. The Bible said that these temptations that come to us are common. They go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's always packaged in a different way, but it's the same old types of temptations and people who are disobedient to the Lord fall for them. Now, you would have to believe by the Bible that living a life without sin is a possibility, but it's probably not a reality. If we were like Jesus and were completely obedient at all times, if we had an impeccable nature, perhaps we would never sin. And that's a better way to live. Now, I want to deal with something really not in my notes, but common in denominational Christianity is the idea that, you know, we're sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. I do not find that in the New Testament. 
that for us, sin should be the exception, not the rule. I was a sinner. I was separated from God by my sins. He brought me out of darkness into marvelous light. He made all things new. I'm a, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. All things are passed away and all things are made new. I'll get to this later, but from Romans 6, we're buried with Him by baptism. We're raised to walk in the newness of life. We have the power of the Spirit. So resisting temptation and walking in obedience is certainly possible, but I've never known anyone that for them it was a reality. When Solomon was praying his prayer of dedication, Second Chronicles, it's also in First Kings, he was praying to the Lord about failure that they would have. In Second Chronicles 6.36, he said, When they sin against you, and then it's a parenthetical statement, for there is no one who does not sin. Solomon kind of caught himself in the middle of his prayer and said, you know, if your people sin, well, we might as well get real, God, right now. You know they are. And then he says, if they pray toward this place and you are angry with them and send them into captivity, it's a prophecy of Babylonian captivity, that you would forgive them. So John tells us, I write this unto you that you sin not. Don't sin. It's dumb, right? It always is. Never makes sense. It's never going to turn out right. But then John, this father figure in the gospel, continues this idea. First John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate if we sin. The advocate is someone who comes alongside us and intercedes on our behalf. This is a legal word picture of someone who comes to our defense. When we have failed, the Lord Jesus Christ in His role of the Sonship, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, He is our advocate. He's our intercessor. He comes between the judgment that we're facing, not because we deserve it, but we are under, covered by His blood. We're behind the protection of His sacrificial death. Hebrews 7.25 said that He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Romans 8.26, uh, 27 and 34 carries the same idea. I'm not going to go into those verses for the sake of time of the intercession nature of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Jesus that atoned for our sins. And you've heard me teach some of these things before, but not this message. Atonement at one mint. We were separated from God by our sins, but by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, He's brought us at one again, at one mint. The atonement that was provided for by Jesus Christ. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that was our atonement, and now he advocates for us for our renewed cleansing. I want to finish this thought. Um, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 2. And he is a propitiation. Now we have another Bible word, another theological word, the atoning sacrifice. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ 
is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As an advocate, how does he rest his case? He rests his case on the blood that he shed on the cross, that it was sufficient payment for our sins, that it satisfied the wrath of God. He took away the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. The Bible said nailing them to his cross. So if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we should say amen because of that, the atoning sacrifice. And Abraham was taking his son Isaac to one of the mountains of Moriah to offer him there as a sacrifice to God. His son, his only son, that God had given him when it was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a son. And Isaac looks around. There's wood, there's a fire. But father, where's the sacrifice? Abraham knows in his mind, well, son, that's you. But he speaks this word that is really more prophetic than Abraham even knows. In Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said, My son, God, will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went on together. And you may remember that there was a ram caught in the thicket, a substitute for Isaac. And Jesus Christ was our substitutionary sacrifice, dying in our place. God provided himself, amen? The Bible said he looked for an intercessor, there was none. So his own right hand saved us. He came in the flesh because none of us were worthy to be the advocate. None of us were worthy to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. It's an amazing concept of the Bible that he is our propitiation. And then John said, and I want to remind you of this, not for ours only. It's easy for us to think that this is just for us. Now there's people out there that won't work for them. Why even try? They're too bad, too messed up. They don't come from a Christian or Judeo-Christian background. But John widens the scope of this so they don't get locked down in an us for and no more mentality. He's not just our sacrifice, but for the sins of the whole world. Every Jew, every Gentile, every person on the face of the earth who has ever lived, the sacrifice of Calvary was enough to cover every sin. And I've already mentioned this in passing but when John the Baptist introduced Jesus Christ in John 1.29, he saw Jesus coming and he said of him, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And every Jewish person standing there knew that lambs only take away sins when they are sacrificed. And from the beginning of his ministry, John prophesied of what it would be. The Apostle Peter echoed this idea that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Some people wonder, why is He patient? Why is He taking so long? But the Apostle Peter said, I want you to know that God is not a slacker. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't lost track of time. 2 Peter 2, 9, 3, 9. He's not slack concerning His promise, 
as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm just making the point that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Every time you look into the face of a family member or a coworker or a stranger on the street, you can look in their face and know that Jesus Christ died for them. And His blood is powerful enough to forgive them of every sin they've ever committed. Now I want to back up in this book. It started in 1 John 2, but, but I want to back up because the Bible is a wise book and John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is leading us to this idea. So I'm going back to 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. I want to make a few comments about this particular portion of Scripture. John is abundantly clear that sins are only forgiven when they're confessed. You can't just assume that the blood that Jesus shed 2,000 years ago is automatically going to cover your sins. If that was true, He's not willing that any should perish. Everybody would be saved. But everyone's not saved unless they come to repentance. Now, I know for most of us in the room, we may think this is an obvious point that, you know, you have to confess and repent before God forgives. But I have known people, drifting apostolics, who believe that the blood of Jesus covered their sins when they never confessed. Now, there's an interesting line of reasoning in the Old Testament, not in my notes, not part of my message, about sins of ignorance. And when you know that you sin, then you repent. If you can't, you know, I don't think you sin in your sleep. And there's a conviction of the Holy Ghost. When, when Jesus comes, the Bible said, the Spirit comes rather, He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. He will convict us. That's part of the work of the Holy Ghost in our lives, that it convicts us of sin. We know that we can sear our conscience with the hot iron. We can come to the place where we can sin and it really not affect us. And we can become numb and not believe that that sin is going to send us to hell. But John wants us to know that we have to confess our sins. You can't just call it an automatic. And I want you to know this very important principle. That when you sin, repent immediately. Don't let guilt wash over you. Don't wait till the next church service or your next devotion. Instantly repent. One of the wise things I read when I was a young youth pastor, I think it was Pat Hurley's Ten Commandments for Youth Ministry, is thou shalt not allow sin to build up in your life. I think that's one of the most powerful things we can know, that if we sin, we should not stack one sin on top of another. 
If we sin with our heart, in our heart, we shouldn't go ahead and commit the act of that sin. We should deal with it while it is still a thought, right? At the lust level, not the level of committing the act of that sin. Amen. The Apostle Paul spoke about this idea of people who think that it's okay to just keep sinning. So I want to go through this passage. It seems a little... Uh, not redundant, but like a digression to me. But I felt like I needed to talk about this tonight. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Maybe if we sin more, you know, I know where sin did abound there, did grace much more abound. It's not talking about in the life of a Christian. Paul said, is this what we should do? There were obviously people in the Roman church that thought, that's what you should do. Jesus, God is good. Grace is abundant. The more you sin, the more grace you get. So sin a lot, get a lot more grace. Paul said, is that what we should do? Verse 2, God forbid. Modern translations may say, certainly not. No. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In the habit of sin. I I don't want to say the occasional sin. You know, I want to go back to something I said earlier about people that believe that, you know, we're sinners saved by grace. We still define ourselves as sinner. I disagree with that. I think that's not in the Bible. Amen? So that's how we do. And, And if we sin, that should be the exception, not the rule. And some people think, well, if good Christians sin every day, and I want to be a good Christian... I need to make sure I I hit my quota every day. I don't want to disappoint God. I I want to be a good Christian, so let me figure out what sin is going to be today. Paul says, certainly not. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death, like that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We have power, right? The resurrection power that is in us by the Holy Ghost is not just going to take us to heaven when the rapture takes place, the coming of the Lord for His church. It quickens us continually, gives us power. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man, our old nature, is crucified with Him. And I believe as I'm preaching, Sunday I preached about this some, That it is a continual process. That's what Brother Jury taught on last week. You put things off. Paul talks about mortifying the deeds of the flesh. It's putting to death the things that want to grow up in your life and choke out the life of God. I'm still in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that from now on, henceforth, we should not serve Sin, For he that is dead is freed from sin. 
And as long as we keep our self-will and our sinful tendencies crucified, put away from us, we will live for God. But if we sin, there's an advocate. Amen. Now the goal of this message is to bring some perspective on the reality of sin and failure. Not all failure is sin. Uh, maybe you could argue that point some. And by the way, John Maxwell, a, a leadership writer, wrote a book called Failing Forward. I have that book. I skimmed through it. It's one of his later books that's really written to, written to a business audience, not a church audience. It's got a lot of cool stories, but it's really not the Bible, and I teach the Bible. So anyway, it's nice to have some stories, but the Bible's our basis. So, so the goal of this message is to bring some hope and determination to overcome our failures. Because as Solomon wisely said, Lord, you know, people are going to sin. And John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said, don't sin. But if you do, it's not the end. Amen. So I feel like I need to talk about this failure tonight. And, and I really, if you saw my notes in media, they're very long. I will not finish tonight. Because I really got kind of involved in this particular uh, area of Bible study right now uh, before I get to some character studies. So I've already mentioned this, that, but I, I purposely, it's in my notes again, that you need to know that God does not forgive sin that is not confessed. Confess your sins immediately. Now Jesus taught that all kinds of sin can be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So let's kind of go a little deep here maybe. Maybe it's shallow to you, but Matthew 12, 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall never be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, Jesus, as a man in the days of his flesh. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, blasphemy is attributing the works of God to the power of Satan. They said of Jesus, he is casting out the devil by the power of Beelzebub. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus tells the story of the strong man. You cannot get into his house until you first bind the strong man. So how am I turning these demon-possessed people loose if I am first not having power over the devil? And he said, if I'm casting out the devil by the power of Beelzebub, who are your people casting out the devil by? It's an interesting line of reasoning. Jesus takes him down. But blasphemy is when you knowingly say that something that is of God is of the devil that is blaspheming against the Holy Ghost. Now I know that speaking in other tongues is the initial sign of receiving the Holy Ghost. But if I would ever say, if I would ever come into a place of delusion, falling away, and I would ever say that speaking in tongues is of the devil, I believe that that would be blasphemous. If I knew that it was true, and I denied that truth, that is speaking against the Holy Ghost. Now the Apostle Paul sheds a little light on this 
in 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul said, Before I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul spoke against Jesus, a church, the Holy Ghost, compelled other, compelled, not other, but compelled Christians to blaspheme. And Paul said, God gave me mercy because in my, in my blasphemy, I was sincere. I really thought this was a cult. This was not of God. So blasphemy has to have the component of knowing. At one time, knowing something was true, and then you say it is not true, is blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So this is what the Bible says is the only unpardonable sin. Now there's a couple other passages that relate to this idea. Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. On the screens, for it is impossible to those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. That means they received the Holy Ghost and were partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, you've got to go back and pull the word impossible. It's impossible to renew them unto repentance, seeing... They crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now, when Jesus was crucified, it is because people who knew who He was, they had evidence of miracles, signs, wonders, the fulfillment of prophecy. And yet they said, crucify Him. And they said, let His blood be upon us. And upon our children, they rejected him and they crucified him. When I was a youth pastor, I had more than one young person, several, who through the years would come to me and say, Brother Daryl, I was Brother Daryl back then. Those were the good old days. I'm afraid that I have gone too far. I, I believe that it's legitimate to preach this may be your last chance to pray. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I believe that we're one breath away. I was thinking about this sometime in the last day or so, how the Lord talks about the either behemoth or, the, or uh, a dragon. that He just takes his breath away and they die. The Lord can say, that's it. He can just take your breath away. He gave you the breath of life. He can take it away. And instantly you, you cease to exist in this life. So... Um, God has the ability to kill us, but when we reject him, we, we crucify the Son of God afresh. You have to understand the context of this scripture. So these young people would come to me, Brother Johns, I'm afraid I've gone too far. You know, there was a judgment sermon preached maybe, and sinners repented, and here's a 14-year-old feeling like they've blasphemed the Holy Ghost. And I know it's possible, but it's not likely. So I would walk them through. Well, they said, you know, the Bible said it is impossible. You know, you've crucified the Son of God afresh. You put Him to an open shame. You've spoken against the Holy Ghost. I've gone too far. And I've tried to walk them through these very passages to say that when you look at the context of this, it is about people who know better and they walk away and they effectively 
crucify Jesus again. What the writer of Hebrews wants you to understand is that there's never going to be another Calvary. If you reject the cross of Jesus Christ, there's no more hope for you. There's nothing else. But as long as you keep the cross in your life, as long as you will come back to the cross, there's hope for you to be forgiven of your sins. So the point of this passage is that if you renounce the cross, there's no more remedy for sin. It doesn't refer to the person who succumbs to temptation and sins. It refers to the person who with wide eyes wide open, repudiates the truth, rejects the truth, and walks away from God. Paul talked about people like this in 2 Thessalonians. I'm just going to refer to this. He speaks of the mystery of iniquity that is already at work and the, the working of Satan, lying wonders. And He said, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And God shall, call, shall send them, and for this cause, because they didn't love truth, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now, revelation and delusion feel the very same way. God sends both. You can be deceived because you've chosen to reject truth, truth that you know. And the Bible said those that did not have a love of the truth, they knew truth, they knew what to do, but they chose to reject it and live another way. Again, I'm not talking about falling into temptation, falling or, you know, into sin from temptation, but in rejecting truth. Paul said, God will, God will send them strong delusion. That they will believe a lie. And that they all might be damned or condemned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Called themselves Christians, but continued to sin. Called themselves believers, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Knew the truth, but didn't love the truth, and didn't live the truth. So, if you walk away from truth, if you deny the, the cross, if you refuse to come back to Jesus Christ, there remaineth, Hebrews 10.26 tells us, for if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now that's Hebrews 10.26, and Hebrews is making the argument that everything is better in the New Testament. That Jesus, it's a better blood. He's a better high priest. He offered a better sacrifice once for all. And he wants us to know that all the sacrifices, all the way back from Abel to the, to the cross of Jesus Christ, that all those sacrifices were temporary, that they can never finally atone for sins. But the cross did. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to know there's nothing else. There's never going to be a ram or a lamb or a turtle dove that's going to be offered for your sins. That's why understanding the power of the cross is so very important that you never take it out of your life. But if you confess, 
if you will, come back to the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, He will forgive you of your sins, regardless of what sins you commit. If you don't blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, regardless of the nature of your sin, there's forgiveness. I want to show you how strong this is about forgiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. And I'm going to, I looked at this in several translations, chose to stay with the King James. I'll break some of these words down, but sexual immorality, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers specifies the type of sexual sin, nor effeminate. Now there's, you can do a great word study on this. Probably the best translation, which other uh, versions may say, is a male prostitute. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, which is homosexual offenders. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a pretty strong list. And Paul says... None of them are going to heaven. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's why I said earlier that I do not identify myself as a sinner regardless of what your past was. If you got in church when you were eight years old like me or younger, or you came into the church after a lifetime of sin, such were some of you. That life is in your rear view mirror. And by the way, it is under the blood, so you can't see it anymore. Your sins are not remembered against you. Amen? We ought to thank the Lord for that right now. We are washed. We're sanctified. Amen. We're not saved in our sins. We are saved from our sins. The salvation, this process, in this verse of repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost. And as a church, we should be in the business of restoring people who fall. Galatians 6 and 1. Brethren and sisters, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, you that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thy also be tempted. The NLT says, do it humbly and gently, and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. As a church, we should restore people who have been overtaken in a fault. The word restore can mean a number of things. Put back on the right path, like a bone that has been set back into its place. It carries the idea of getting back on the right path. I've been talking about discipleship and maturity and the marks of maturity. One of the marks of a mature Christian is that we are reaching other people who need help along the way, who have been hurt, who are fallen, maybe self-inflicted. And when you fall, 
you should fall into the arms of Jesus Christ. And when you fail, you should fail forward, not backwards and out of the church. I'm not going to get into this tonight for the sake of time. This is where this message goes and perhaps next week. The difference between Judas and Simon Peter. One failed and was lost. One failed forward back into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a spiritual person, you should restore. If you are not spiritual, get out of the way. Right? He said that we need spiritual people right now because this is tough work. We've got to get this person back. And there's a lot of scriptures I'm thinking about, a couple of scriptures about, you know, uh, that which is lameless to be turned out of the way and people that have been taken captive at his will. Uh, so we're here in the business of getting people back to God. So if you're not spiritual, get out of the way. Let spiritual people restore those that have been overtaken in a fault and zip your lip. Don't talk about it. James chapter 5, 19, 19 and 20, not on the screens. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him. So this is not a, a sinner. This is a saint that is erred from the truth. And somebody in the church, this is somewhat of a parallel passage, right, to Galatians 6. Let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide not cover up, but cover a multitude of sins. We need some mature people, amen, to help restore those. Now, I'm going to take a moment here too, maybe more, but not long. I'm watching the clock carefully, although it's my enemy right now. Even to do half this message. So anyway, I believe that there are some sins that disqualify a person from certain ministry roles. So most of you are not licensed ministers in the United Pentecostal Church, but I am, and we have over 20 ministers in our church who are licensed ministers. And there are sin, sins that biblically disqualify you from, from a, being a minister, a preacher, I believe. Not preaching, but holding a place as a pastor. And one is sexual immorality. It doesn't mean that you cannot be restored as a saint, or to a place of ministry, but in the United Pentecostal Church, conduct unbecoming a minister of a sexual nature is a deal breaker for your license. And I'm saying that because the Bible holds a high standard for people in leadership. And I realize when you say like this, you put a target on your back, that target's been there a long time, right? But that's part of being in the ministry. Solomon said in Proverbs 6.32, but whosoever committeth adultery with the woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and a dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Compare that with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Titus 1 and 7, when Paul said to Timothy that a bishop, a person who is a pastor, must be blameless. Now, some people call me bishop. I like Brother John's. It's just great with me. Some of you may say Pastor John's. I'm good with that. But I'm a superintendent. So some people in some church organizations, a bishop is an overseer of churches. So I guess I'm old enough to be a bishop, although it doesn't feel like it. But bishop is pastor. It's an overseer. That's all it really means. And Paul said he has to be 
blameless. So I want you to understand that restoration to a place of ministry is so important and we believe in that. But I don't want you to think that there are no limits to what you can do in the future because of a sin that would be a spiritual deal breaker for you. I'm not trying to make you lose hope. I want to give understanding and context back to Romans 6. You know, we can sin that grace may abound. I'm sorry, there's some sins that always have cost and it may be a consequence that you did not expect. Now, if a, if a person is a pedophile and really repents and comes to God, I believe that a pedophile can repent and be saved. But I'm just going to tell you that at this church, they will never serve in children or youth ministries. Now, you may say, well, I thought you're supposed to restore such a one. We are, but we're also recognize that there's limitations because of the nature of a sinner, of the sin. If a person has a history of embezzlement, we're probably not going to put them in the finance office. Now, I'm just saying, maybe I'm judgmental, but here, here's my point. My message tonight is not to talk about licensed preachers or pedophiles or embezzlers. But I want you to understand that God will restore you to salvation and a place of meaningful ministry, but it may not look like plan A. To understand this, I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. So Jeremiah's on a field trip. He goes down to the house where a man has a pottery shop. And he's going to watch this man working with clay and a wheel. So that's what he's doing. Jeremiah said, I went down to the potter's house. And behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. He's got wet, pliable clay, malleable clay. And he's working with it. Now this is on the screens, verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So I want to pause right there. It was not the imperfection of the hands of the potter. Because we'll see that this is going to be likened to God. But it was the imperfection of the clay. And while he has this clay on the wheel... Something goes wrong. And the potter says, I had a plan for this lump of clay, but, but it's not going to work. So, the second half of this verse, he made it again another vessel as it as seemed good to the potter to make it. Maybe, maybe there was a rock. I don't know what. It's just a word picture. It's a story. But something happened. A real thing happened. Jeremiah was watching this. And maybe he had to take out some of the clay. And now it's going to be smaller. It could only be a certain shape. I don't know. But the, I just trust the Bible, right? The good news is that this clay failed forward. You can fail in the hands of the potter. 
That's why I talked about ministry and some of the things I've just said. Maybe plan A is not possible, but the Lord doesn't trash us when we fail. The Lord doesn't discard us if we'll come back to the cross. That's why I went through all those verses. If we'll keep the cross in our life and repentance in our life, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jeremiah 18.5 Then the word of the Lord came to me. So let's just pause a minute to get the picture. Jeremiah is just watching. He sees what happens. It's just a guy. He's just a potter. Clay is marred. He starts over. Works with it however he does it. Makes it another vessel. And when Jeremiah watches that, then God speaks to him. It says, O house of Israel. I can say, O Christian. Cannot I do with you as this potter. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So we have a choice to stay in the hands of the potter or to be discarded to the potter's field. The potter's field is a place where hardened and broken clay was thrown away. Pliable clay had hope of becoming another vessel. Hardened clay was either useful as a vessel it had taken the shape the potter intended or it was useless as an abandoned project, discarded. So my message to you tonight is that God has given us such a wonderful, great salvation. And there's a tremendous amount of condemnation that can come into our lives. I don't have time to get into this passage, but it's 2 Corinthians 7, about godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. We have a choice to either let conviction of our sins draw us to Jesus Christ, or allow condemnation to drive us away. I will take this and I'll do it really fast. Go straight to verse 10, please, in media. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul said there's this drawing power of God. That's conviction. And then there's this separating, driving power of the sorrow of the world that makes you feel like a loser, that you're unworthy, You'll never amount to anything that you might as well just give up. After all, you were marred in the hands of the potter. But just keep coming back to the cross. Would you please stand? I'm going to say it again, but conviction draws us toward God. Condemnation drives us away from God. Godly sorrow is that conviction of sin that draws us into repentance and restoration. It is the hope of forgiveness that keeps us on the wheel and pliable 
where God can work with us and forgive us so that when we fail, we can fail forward 